you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Welcome to you all again. I wanna begin by rewinding and considering a being of great power and of great glory that was at some time unknown, created by God. Uh, This being was at the pinnacle of creation. This being was something, uh, was someone entrusted by God with, with great authority in his creation. But over time, this being began to covet the position of God. This being, and we'll call him Lucifer or Satan, 
eventually began to foment rebellion in heaven against God. He, he, he reached out and won to his cause an unknown but large body of evil supernatural beings. Uh, they were not, not initially evil, but as they turned to him and began to rebel against God, these beings with Lucifer or Satan at their head began a rebellion, a war in heaven against God. Satan was eventually cast down and he continues to wage that war now against God and against God's people on earth. Well, uh, when I uh, began um, my career, I spent most of my life working in the army and I was an intelligence officer. And when I was training to be an intelligence officer, we had a very specific card on the back of my toilet door, right? Have you ever done that? And on that card, it told us about the Missourians. Now, has anyone heard of the Missourians before? How can you not have heard of them? They're a vicious enemy of Australia fighting a, a decades-long war against us, the Missourians. Now, it's true that every army needs to train for an enemy. Ours was the Missourians. Yes, they are fictional, but it was not hard to work out who they were. This was the end of the Cold War, so they happened to speak Russian, and they used Russian equipment and weapons. We knew who they were, and my job, why that card was on the toilet door, was to know them. I needed to know the enemy so that we could fight them. I, and on that card, it told me that the, the, uh, the, the uh, main battle tank, the T-72, its range was such and such. It told me the AT-3 anti-tank Saga missile would do this and how many infantry could be carried in a BMP fighting vehicle. That was the enemy that we were fighting and I needed to know. Now, do you know the greatest enemy that you face? Do you know the greatest enemy? I described him to you at the start. In, uh, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us about our real enemy. It, it says this, For we do not wrestle or fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's our enemy. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Cosmic powers of, of darkness, not flesh and blood. There's our enemy. And today as we come to Nehemiah chapter 4, as we heard read, we see God's people encounter human enemies. We're going to see some of those, we're going to look at them, but standing behind those enemies, just as standing behind any human enemies that we face today, are the spiritual forces of evil. The forces of evil in the cosmic realms. And today as we look at these physical enemies that God's people are facing, we're going to consider the enemy that stands behind them. We're going to consider how we can fight that enemy. So I'm going to pray for us now because it seems appropriate to do that when we come to consider the, the supernatural forces of evil. I'm going to pray that God, uh, by his power, would bind those forces as we meet together and as we consider what's a very important part of our Christian walk. And if you're not yet a Christian, it's something, the enemy is your enemy too. So I'm going to pray and I'd ask you to pray with me for us now. Father God, as we, we come to your presence this morning, we ask that in your mercy and grace, you would bind the hands of the evil one. We pray, Lord, that as we consider who he is and what he does in our world, as we consider the opposition and the enemies that we face here, 
As we turn our eyes to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, we pray for protection in the name of Jesus. We pray for him to be bound. And we pray, Lord, that in these next moments, we would learn and experience things we need to know to triumph over that enemy. And we pray it this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, we meet the enemies of God in Nehemiah chapter four in verse one, right at the very beginning. It says, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Uh, sometimes I reckon as a Christian, me personally, I'm sure you're different, but we imagine that, well, we're Christians, we're nice people. Everyone will like us all the time. And if we become a Christian, our family will rejoice and our friends will have a party. And that's what we think it will be like. And, and with the church, it's easy to expect the same thing. We're planning a church, starting something new. We're doing a new ministry. We're rebuilding the walls of a church. Everyone's going to be excited and happy. Except we have spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We have enemies. And we need to expect that these enemies will be active. And they are active especially when rebuilding work is going on. Uh, if you're a Christian and you, you're asleep in your faith or you're not yet a Christian and you really don't care, in many ways, the devil is just happy to let sleeping dogs lie. Leave you alone. A church is all sleepy and going through the motions, leave it alone. But when things start to wake up, when, if you're not a Christian, you start to ask questions, you start to feel uncomfortable about the life you're living, or, or you are a Christian and you feel like, I'm asleep, I need to wake up, or you're a church and things start happening, that's when he's provoked. And that's what's happening here in Nehemiah. The walls are being rebuilt and the enemies are provoked. And the first tactic that they use is still a very common one. It's mockery and lies. Listen to verse one again. Now, when Sambalat heard that, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. He jeered, he, he mocked. Um, it tells us that he used the occasion of a military parade. The army of Samaria is drawn up before the walls and maybe those who are, are working on the walls are doing it while the army's gathered up and maybe he's giving his address to the troops and, and the people on the wall can hear and he's laughing at them and he heaps scorn and contempt on them and he asks a whole bunch of rhetorical questions expecting the answer no. Did you notice that? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? No. Will they sacrifice? No. Will they finish it in a day? No. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? No. Familiar tactic, isn't it? Dom shared before, you're a Christian, but will your sins really be forgiven and you go to be with Jesus when you die? No. You've been caught in addictions before, will you break them now? No. <laughs> will you succeed this time when you failed so often before? No. Will you ever be good enough to be one of God's people? No, you won't. And, and corporately, we, we, those questions, that mockery, those lies come as a church, isn't it? Do you think that you are really going to achieve anything as a church? No. Do you think you're going to plant new churches? No. Are you really going to grow your gospel community? No. No. You're pathetically weak. 
And uh, I, I love it. I mean, Sam Bulat gets his other offside at Tobiah, and, and Tobiah goes like, yeah, yeah, you know, a fox could climb on that wall and it'd break down. Yeah, see? You know, like... Now, these devilish weapons can be very effective. But, of course, they're propaganda. They're lies. If what Sam Balat said was really true and their whole efforts were so pathetic and weak and useless, why bother getting angry? Nothing's going to happen. If the devil was afraid, was not really afraid of God's work in your heart... And what he is doing in your walk, changing you by the grace of Jesus Christ from one glory to another, if he wasn't really afraid of that, why would he bother mocking you? Why would he bother seeking to discourage you? If the devil was not really scared about what we seek to do as a church, planning new churches, seeing communities come alive, doing things at Whittington and Ballarat, seeing the kingdom expand, not just withdrawing behind the walls of the wagons, he wasn't really afraid of that. Why would he seek to resist it? Jesus said this about the devil, John 8, 44. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. But he's a liar and the father of lies. The devil seeks in Nehemiah chapter 4 through the enemies of God to heap scorn and mockery on them. He does the same with you and I, doesn't he? It's lies. Propaganda. But the truth is the lies still sting, don't they? I imagine it must have stung them as they were building that wall, hearing the laughter of soldiers out the front, the mockery heaped on them. We know it stung Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, though he knew it was lies, he felt the mockery. And so what did he do? Well, he did what Hezekiah had done 300 years before. You might remember that the Assyrian army was coming towards Jerusalem hundreds of years before. They wanted to take the city without a fight. And so you remember they sent their military commander to the walls and he laughed at them. He spoke in Hebrew so that they could all hear on the walls. And he said, this is going to end badly. Hezekiah wants you to fight, but you're going to eat your own sons and daughters. You, you, this is a disaster. You need to give in. Your God can't save you. Did, did your God save us? To save any of the other people we've, we've fought against, not going to save you either. And you might remember Hezekiah goes to the temple and he, and he spreads open the communication before the Lord and he, he brings it to God in, in prayer. Nehemiah brings the taunts and the mockery to God. It stings and he comes to God. And did you notice his prayer? I, I wonder if you noticed his prayer because I want to ask as I read it, to, you know, as you think of that, or I'll read it again, ask yourself, is this a prayer that you should pray? All right, listen to it. Turn back the taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sins be blotted out from your side, O Lord. Prayer of vengeance. Is that a prayer that we should pray? No, but yes. So let's look at the, at the no. Nehemiah lived and spoke at a time before the coming of, of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we know that God's words are true. They're given for our instruction and benefit. That's why we're studying the Old Testament now together. God speaks by his Holy Spirit through it. But in one sense, it's like primary school, right? At primary school, you learn things that are true, hopefully. <laughs> but 
as you go into secondary school and university, the things that you learn, like, say, mathematics, are very simple in, in primary school. They become more complicated. You understand more how things work. In some ways, the Old Testament is like primary school. Important things that we need to know, but there's a greater revelation that comes as we move into the New Testament. And the greater revelation, of course, the greatest revelation is in Jesus himself. So how does Jesus deal with enemies? Well, the New Testament reminds us that although our enemies will mock us, it says that they are blinded and deceived by the God of this age. Who's the God of this age? Satan. So the human enemies of God's people that that we encounter, they're blinded and deceived. They're held captive. They are slaves, although they don't know it. And so when they come against God's people and against God's work, it's not them that, that are they're the ones that are the, fo- are the focus. So, so the New Testament tells us, love your enemy. Uh, Jesus tells us, don't revile those who revile you, but, but pray for them. And you, you know and remember that Jesus sets that example. Do you remember the incredible mockery that was heaped on him as he hung on the cross? Remember them laughing and laughing to come down from the cross if you're the son of God. You saved others, can't say, it's mockery. And it was lies. But how did Jesus respond in his agony? Hanging there on the cross, you, you know what he said. Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they do. As New Testament people, the prayer that Nehemiah prayed, I don't believe is appropriate for us. To pray that God would withhold his forgiveness from those who need it. As Christians, we pray for our enemies. We do good for those who hate us. But yes, it's also a prayer we should pray, and I'll tell you why. Because it's a, it's a good prayer. You know, Jesus taught his disciples that prayer to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what that prayer is praying? Your will be done on earth. It's now done in heaven. It's always been done in heaven. It's not done here on earth a lot of the time. You know why? Because there is the evil forces of supernatural forces working in people's hearts, working in our world, the brokenness of sin. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're effectively praying. The end point of that is get rid of Satan once and for all. Lock him away. Come, Lord Jesus, and do here on earth what you already do in heaven. Heaven is cleansed. Cleanse us here. We, we effectively praying, bind the devil. Destroy him. And not specifically, but the prayer that we pray against supernatural evil is a prayer that should take no prisoners. Yes, those people who are deceived, they're like drones in a war. You know, they're, they're, they're doing evil things, but they're controlled by a greater power. And so when we come and we pray, we pray that God would indeed destroy the devil without mercy. So that's what we see here. But uh, verse 6 tells us that the devil's first tactic of mockery fails. Read verse 6. So we built the wall. (laughs) You tried to mock us, but we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But if only mockery, if only mockery was the only tactic in the devil's or the only weapon in his arsenal, but it's not. Mockery is only the beginning here in Nehemiah chapter 5, chapter 4. 
The enemies of God are not toothless and they're growing in number. Uh, verse seven tells us, but when Sanballat and Tobiah, and now listen to this, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. And uh, th that list of, of enemies is now coming from the north, the south, the east and the west. They're, they're closing in on the work that's going on in Jerusalem. They're surrounding it on every side. And they don't just get angry and talk about stuff. They plot to put an end to it and they plot to use violence. It's not just mockery. Now it's violent action. And, and the truth is that the, the evil one, the devil, still use violence against God's people now. And we are right to remember that the devil is like a leashed dog. He's chained. He can only run so far. But in God's wisdom and his ultimate sovereignty and knowledge, he allows the devil to range far enough sometimes to harm physically God's people. That's the reality of the world in which we live. A few weeks ago, I went, we, we partner as a church, many of you will know, with Open Doors a wonderful organization that, that's uh, lifting the needs of the persecuted church around the world. And uh, I went to a seminar a couple of uh, weeks ago online and um, they, were, um, they, were, they were speaking about some of the latest things that are happening in the world. And it's what's been happening for thousands of years. It's still happening. They, they told us about uh, new Christian converts in Iran simply for becoming Christians are imprisoned for years without trial in, in terrible conditions. Uh, we spoke earlier about the work that we support in North India and that, that seminar coming up soon, next week. Um, that, that work goes on in the midst of physical violence against many people in that area of North India. You, you, if you're a pastor, for example, you become a Christian, you're often taken and you are interrogated and you are beaten. Maybe your teeth are smashed. The physical intimidation and violence continues. It's not just in those countries, it's in many countries in the world today. Martin Luther, in that great hymn he wrote, was right. He says, his craft and his power are great. On earth is not his equal. The evil one and his forces have the ability given them by God to some extent to physically harm, do violence against God's people. And the result of this force in Nehemiah chapter 4, these threats of violence, is discouragement. Did you see that? Look, let's listen to verse 10 and 12 again. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. It's too much rubble. By ourselves, we won't be able to rebuild the wall. Discouragement. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Violence. And that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Their families and their relatives and those from that said, come stop this, come back, we need you back at home. Give up this work. Discouragement. Discouragement is so real. And I'll tell you why I find this discouragement encouraging. Because <laughs> it is encouraging. I find it encouraging because surely that is what you and I experience in our Christian walks now, isn't it? It is. We know it is. The, a constant 
temptation to be discouragement. Discouraged. Let's think of a few. Why I'm a Christian young man or woman or older man or woman and I want to be married, but there just doesn't seem to be anyone around in the church. Is it why worth waiting? Why keep waiting? There's other options. Why fight pornography anymore? The battle's just so hard. It just never seems to end. I'm never going to win. Why persevere in a difficult marriage? It's just so frustrating. I'd be so much better off by myself. Why continue on? Why, if you are same-sex attracted, fight for holiness and sexual purity? It's so much easier just to do what everyone else is doing and give in. Why try and care for the poor and the marginalized when they just take you for granted and never seem to change? And in churches, why bother preaching the good news? People aren't interested anymore. We're not seeing great numbers of people come to faith. It's, it's, the world has moved on. Why try and plant new churches? It's hard enough keeping existing churches going. Why keep ministering the truth when the opposition to the word of God goes more stronger and more intensely each year? Why not just give up? There's rubble everywhere. There's too much rubble. There's too much. The burdens are too heavy. Now, is it encouraging to know that we're not the first? Like we see in Nehemiah chapter four, if you're like me, you know, like did history as a degree and I like to think in the good old days, it was much easier. You know, in the 1950s or the 1890s or whatever, you know, spiritually things were booming and it was wonderful. And, and in fact, it's, you look throughout history, it's always been hard. You go back to Nehemiah chapter four, this is Bible times, right? And it's hard. It's hard. I mean, as a Lord of the Rings fan, I love it. There's this scene where, um, where, where I think Sam and Frodo were talking and, and, uh, and, and they're saying, you know, in the stories that we all talk about, things were always wonderful. And, and they go like, well, actually, this might be a story that we might be in a story right now. And it's hard and difficult. And, and it was hard and difficult for them too. And I find it encouraging because we see in the scriptures that if you and I are actually facing discouragement, it means we're doing something right. It, it honestly means we're doing something right because we read in the New Testament that God's people face discouragement. We read in church history that God's people face discouragement. We, we see it here, God's people face discouragement. If you face discouragement, it might mean that you're actually doing the right thing. In fact, it does. John 10.10 said this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. John 8.44, he's a murderer from the beginning. So if you see the thief's the murderer, the, the, the killer. If you see his threats of discouragement in your own life and in our church, we're just following the same road that millions of Christians have before us. But what is even more encouraging than that discouragement is how God's people respond. That's the verse nine. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They pray to their God and then they take resolute action. They're not opposed. Those are brothers, prayer and action. They go together and they stand and resist. And listen to Nehemiah's call to action, verse 14. I love this. And I looked and I rose. So he saw all the discouragement. And he said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
Nehemiah speaks to the people who are facing discouragement. He said, remember what's at stake. Remember what you're fighting for. And, and Christian here, gathered here, if you're a Christian here this morning, what are you fighting for? Remember what it is. Remember what's at stake. If you're married, what is at stake in your marriage is the next generation of faithful believers. That's a significant thing that's at stake. If your marriage is difficult and hard, don't give up. What's at stake if you're a single person and you're wrestling with sexual purity? What's at stake? It's your holiness. It's the growth of God in you and through you to others around you in your workplace. The devil wants to sabotage you. He wants you to be ineffective and useless because you're heaped up under your own sin. So fight. That's what's at stake. And those are two examples. Every issue of discouragement in your life, there's something that's at stake. The devil's worried about it. That's why he's opposing you. Because what is happening, he doesn't like it. So fight for it. And then notice how remember, Nehemiah says, and remember the God who's great and awesome. As you fight for those, remember who the, that God is. And that God will win. Our God always wins. We may feel like we're on the losing side. We may feel that we're being discouraged, that we're being pressed down and compressed and that the devil is always at us and, and we, we feel like we're just we, we're shrinking, shrinking. No, God is great and awesome. Remember what's at stake in your fight and remember the God who is with you in it. Nehemiah's words are right and good. And then as they hear them, they take wise and prudent action. They actually do stuff. You notice that? They station guards, they sleep with their weapons close to them, they have a ready reaction force to come quickly to the place where the fighting is. Half of them work, half of them defend. Those who work carry weapons, they get swords and trails. Now, I want to give you a wonderful example of this. My family on my mother's side are, are French Protestants. And not far from the town which they come from in southern France called Montpellier, uh, is, I think I got a picture of it. It's the Tower of Constance. Yeah, you can see it there. In 1729, a 15-year-old girl called Mary Durand was taken to that tower. 15 years old, just a teenager. The reason for her being confined in that tower was that she had become a professing believer in Jesus Christ. She'd been transformed by the Holy Spirit. She was reading the Bible. She was telling others. And for that crime, she was imprisoned in that tower as a 15-year-old. Two years later, her brother Pierre, who was a preacher, was captured and hanged in Montpellier. 16 years later, at the age of 31, Mary Durand, still in that tower, was offered her freedom. If only she would renounce the faith in Christ which she had professed. She refused. And she stayed in that tower for another 22 years. 38 years she was confined in that tower. 38 years like Rapunzel but without any hair. 38 years while her, her, her chance for marriage childbearing, all the things that were, were offered to her drifted away year by year, 38 years in that tower. Now, why do I 
share that story with her, with you, because she resisted. She resisted. She knew what was at stake. She knew who a great and awesome God was, so she resisted. She actually began a ministry of encouragement in those 38 years from that tower. She wrote letter after letter, sending them out to other areas in France and Switzerland where where persecuted Christians were staying faithful. Many of those letters today are in museums in that area of southern France. But this is what I want to share with you because this inspires me. As she was in that tower of Constance in that single room, she took out a knitting needle. And over the years, she carved a single word into the solid rock. Here it is. You probably can't read that word. It's register. Resist. What an amazing woman. 38 years resisting, standing firm. And you know that this is our call as Christians now, resist. We, speak, we spoke about the devil, that he's real, that he's, he's, he's evil, utterly evil. He's bent on our destruction. What are we to do? Get really scared and run away? No, we're not slaves anymore. Slaves might bow under his pressure and be cower in fear before him. We resist. Peter says, resist him standing strong in the faith. Resist him. Resist him and he will flee from you. Ephesians says this, chapter 6 verse 11 so put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil resist and having done all to stand firm stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, resist, resist. You and I are in a warfare. We're in a vicious battle in the supernatural realms that's, that's playing out in your life and in our church. Resist. We resist the evil one, but take note of verse 17 in Nehemiah chapter 4. There's something here. We didn't read that. I'm going to read it for you now. It says this. Something here we need not, must not miss. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. They carried the burdens of their ministry and the burdens of their daily life in such a way that their sword arms were free. Now, that must have been difficult. Now, as Christians, we know our enemy. We know the weapons that we have at our disposal. The Bible gives us these things. We are not ignorant of them. But why is it that Christians in Australia today do not resist? I don't think it's because we don't know. I don't think it's because we're any different to other generations of Christians. I think it is personally because we don't organize our burdens properly. Remember those those workers on the wall, they had their burdens structured in such a way that they'd carry the necessities they had to, but they would also have their sword arms free to resist and to fight. So let me ask you, uh, the burdens that you carry, and you need to carry, they're good burdens, 
Have you struck to them in such a way that you are able to resist the devil? That you, have you struck to them in such a way that your sword arm is free and that you can fight? What do I mean by that? I mean, do you make time for prayer? You heard Ephesians 6. You know, we're in this battle. Do you make time for prayer? Do you structure time in your day-to-day routine to come to the word of God, to learn about your enemy, more than that, to learn about your mighty savior and to feed on him? Do you commit to fellowship with other believers? Matt was talking today, we, we run through it, gospel community. Do you commit to that? To spending time with other believers in God's word and, and in prayer? Do you prioritize gathering for worship and feeding on the sacraments? Do you do that? Because each of us have exactly the same amount of time. You know, I, I always think, I wish I had more time. We've all got the same amount of time. We've all got 24 hours in a day. But do you structure your time in the light of the reality of the heavenly war that you are in? Do I do that? Does our church do that? Do, do we carry our burdens in such a way that our sword arms are free to resist and, and to fight? And sadly, if we don't, and we get caught up in the busyness of life here in Australia, all the many different things we have to do and all of these things, then we will not structure our burdens in such a way we're ready to resist. And so we will be pressed back and overcome. The Bible gives us how we resist. And we are fools if we think that we know better. So let me ask you, are you doing that? And if you're not, maybe you're simply carrying too many burdens. Maybe you are simply, if you're too busy to pray, you're just too busy. Have you structured your life? Because you can. We each can. Adjust your burdens. Maybe you need to adjust your work burdens. Maybe many of us, we need to adjust our hobbies that consume so much time. Maybe we need to adjust our mortgages so we don't have to work so hard and so long so that we're able to invest in these things and pass them to the next generation. Now, this in no way hear me is saying like the point of this sermon is do more stuff, right? I'm not saying that. These, these disciplines that the Bible gives us of resistance, these weapons that we have, don't save us. The grace of Jesus Christ alone saves us. You're not going to win God's favor by doing these things. You're just simply responding to the grace that God has given you with the disciplines that he outlines in his word so that you and I and the church, our church will be able to resist, so we need to make sure, and if you're going right now, you're thinking, oh, Holy Spirit, that's me. I haven't got time. Why am I so infrequent at, at public worship? Because I've got the kids, I've got sport. Blah, 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 blah. Maybe it's time to readjust your burdens. Or why, why is it that I can't do this or I can't do that? Maybe it's time to readjust your burdens because this is the war we're in. We've been given the weapons. Make sure you carry your burdens with your sword arm free. But I want to uh, close with one of my favorite passages in, in all of English literature. I don't know how many times over the years I've used this. Sorry, I'm going to use it again. I'm not sorry, because I, I really like it. It comes from the Pilgrim's Progress. And I love the Pilgrim's Progress because John Bunyan, the author of it, he knew what it was to face resistance and to have to resist. He was imprisoned for years simply for speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus. He knew, and his character, the Pilgrim's or the, the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, the most published book in the English language to this day after the Bible. 
in that book, he, he pictures as a pilgrimage from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And on the way, it's, it's the constant battle. His characters face constant opposition. They, they, face, they face deadly attacks all the time because that's what it's like to be a Christian. And the character I want to close with is a guy called Mr. Valiant for Truth. Mr. Valiant for Truth, fighting the fight along that road. And I want to close with the encouragement that just as Nehemiah's, uh, in his time, they rebuilt the wall. There's coming a time when our wall is going to be rebuilt for good. And Mr. Valiant for Truth, he reaches the celestial city. And he's on the banks of it. He says this, or this is what Bahar Bunyan describes it. Then said he, I'm going to my father's. And though with great difficulty I am got hither, Yet now I do not repent me of all the trouble I've been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage. And my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and my scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who now will be my rewarder. So he passed over and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. Beautiful picture. Don't you want that for your life? When you enter the celestial city as you will? And you want to be able to just lay that armor down, carry the scars to be the evidence that you fought his back. Certain that he will be your reward. I'm going to pray for us. Musicians are going to come up and then we're going to come into the sacrament of communion. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are sovereign over the universe that the devil may roar and rage and foam against you and against us, your people. But thank you that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you've triumphed, that you have redeemed us, that you've taken us from darkness to light, you have taken us from his kingdom into yours. And so, Lord, this morning, as we resist, we ask that you would help us to be like Mary Durant, you would help us to be like the, the generations of faithful Christians who have fought your battle and, and now found you to be their rewarder. Father, we pray for our church that we would resist as a community. We'd resist looking upwards to you, putting our armor on, reorganizing our burdens. Father, would you please help us to do this? We are dependent on you. We long for you. We look to you for our protection and our victory and our hope. And we pray these things this morning, Lord, asking you to stir up our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.